0: Welcome to MindShifters Radio, I'm Tim Hayes, I'm your host for the first hour, and today is Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We help people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we'd appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. Call that number and press 1 on your phone. It'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I can then turn on the microphone and announce it by your area code. Alternatively, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n.org. And if you do that, we'll address your comment or question on the Internet show and then as time allows send you a notification about what day and time that was covered in the show so you can listen back to the archives for the feedback or input. And we greatly appreciate whenever anybody does that, whether it's through a phone call directly or a question through the email, because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service. And that's just a lot easier to do when we know how whatever it is we're doing is landing for you, how it's being useful. So this is a Wednesday, and we have plenty of time for comments, questions, answers, testimonials. 563-999-3581. We had our support group last night. And and it was quite the um, eye-opener for some people. There were people in the group who had never considered the possibility that whatever is in the Bible is not literal truth or that perhaps it wasn't even intended to be a literal um, truth, that it was... Actually, here, here's the possibility, because we don't know. We didn't, weren't alive at that time. We aren't the actual people that authored it. But it has been proposed that great value can be absorbed from that writing, this tome that people call the Bible by looking at it as an allegory, as a metaphor, as a series of parables, as um, having parallel meaning for deep, energetic, spiritual, philosophical truths. And we had somebody in our group last night who'd never considered that the stories in the Bible weren't literal that they were more representative of a fable, a myth, an allegory. So now that in, in large part that was prompted by the conversation we'd been having earlier in the week about Neville Goddard <clears throat> and his writing, and he's a person who very much like Mary Baker Eddy chose to look at the the powerful messages that one can discern at a deeper level than just the surface literal level of any story in the Bible. And so, that's what prompted the discussion and as the discussion continued we had um we had a person who quite honestly said i'm just shocked that i'm sitting here in, as a mature adult and i've never considered this before it's never even been presented at a time or a place when it could get through my perception Maybe people have said this before, but it never really sank in. It never really made any sense. So if you're one of those people and you're having some thoughts that things might need to change for the better in your life, one way to do that is tap into people like Mary Baker Eddy's work with Science and Health with keys to the Scriptures or Neville Goddard's work where he talks extensively about the, the spiritual or the energetic or the ethereal meaning of everything in the Bible. You know, there's a way of looking at it that says, this is an instruction for using the creative power of your mind energy which every one of us has every one of us has been given dominion over this creative force that we call mind energy and our little our little hose you might say from the great fire hydrant of creativity and your ability to choose what you focus your mind energy on gives you the ability to be a creator actively being a creator in your own life is what many people, as they're studying the the Bible say it's really about it's really about helping you understand that creation is moderated by is initiated by consciousness itself. And since you are conscious, you have the capacity to be a creator and that you're actively doing that in your life every moment, even when you're not actively consciously aware of it. So if there's anything in your life that you say you don't like and you'd like to have be different, and you're the one who's actually creating your experience of life, it might make a lot of sense. look into this approach to find a way to understand the power of your own consciousness and to use it more proactively in a way that would benefit you so we're advocating that in you know the way of mastery and the course in miracles and the book My Big Toe, My Big Theory of Everything, and the book A Walk in the Physical with Christian Sundberg. We absolutely hope that these tools we're offering will be actively used by people. One of the discussion points that was rather loaded last night in the group was um, what about all this pain and suffering? What about all of these samskaras, with these negative energies I have in my consciousness? I can't just focus on happiness and light and transform my life. And any teaching that says I can, I think is bogus. That's what one of our members was saying. And we were trying to Acknowledge that and advocate the same thing, that if there's a truth that says, or any kind of a teaching that says, all you have to do is imagine that you really are God and everything will get better, um, chances are you won't have so much luck with that teaching or with that practice. And the reason is because we're not living... Fresh in each new moment, we bring with us. Michael Rice likes to quote: "We bring with us the the energies that are off the mark that go back three and four generations." And there's hard science that demonstrates this that in in animals and laboratory rats in humans that when we've had a trauma like a famine and they track people from a place where they've had a you know really disruptive famine generations later those people are showing physical disruptions patterns of illness that are directly related to what their ancestors went through in the famine And so it happens with us humans and it happens with animals and these energies get passed down and you, you're you not going to just wish them away with positive thinking. So what we recommend is use of the tools like the Reality Management Worksheet and Breathwork and or EFT tapping and or targeted journaling that Michael calls the Mind Shifter tool to actively explore wide open with childlike curiosity what might I be doing that keeps me stuck? What might I be holding on to out of fear or out of trauma-based energies that are in my system that I need to become aware of and release rather than unwittingly hold on to them. So for a long time now, decades, I've been advocating a two-prong approach. One, One prong of the approach is that I recognize that my true nature is love, that my, Michael Rice would say that your birthright is access to this higher wisdom and this, bliss state and the second prong is that anytime i have an experience that's less than that i step into the use of a tool i take 100 percent responsibility for what i'm experiencing and i pick up a tool and i start to dismantle whatever the mechanism is within my own thought process that's creating the experience of being less than love it's creating the disruption or blocking me from having a direct experience in this work. They call it the veils or they call it the unconscious. And the way of mastery in, in the recent lesson was asking us to just question, what is it that we actually value? And if you ever have a question about what you value, just take a look at what you're spending your time in intelligence and your money and your energy doing because that is in truth what you value so if you spend a lot of time in anger it's because you value anger and you may not be thinking that you value anger you may be thinking you don't want anger in your life anymore and yet i had somebody ask me this morning why is it that it's so difficult to get people to be accountable for their own actions and the consequences of their actions, et etc. and I asked him to clarify the question, and he said, "Well, you know somebody does something and then they get angry and then it breaks something, and then they and then they just want to keep blaming their circumstances or the people around them." for the anger they had that had them rage out and break something. And I said, well, the first level of answer I would offer with that is that we live in a culture that has brainwashed us to believe that we are not responsible for what we're experiencing. It's kind of the soup that we've been... or or the brine we've been pickled in, that our brains have been pickled in, people talking about, you made me angry, you hurt my feelings, you're scaring me, you offended me. And the more people talk that way, the more it becomes their experience. And so they actually are going to have to undo that conditioning before they can even start to consider, oh, wait a minute, yes, this person did this thing or that thing, and yet my anger is being created inside me as a response to the interpretation that I'm choosing and then placing on this activity or this experience as I perceive it. You know, yesterday I... Uh, they, they published the second interview I did with Mr. Uh, Bill Sturley, who's the author of the book, The Emotional Sobriety Solution. And in it, uh, it, it's a book that I'm delighted to be able to share with people because he's got just a slightly different perspective after observing almost all the same things that we observe in this work that I've observed in my private practice over the years. And that is the power of living your life through observation and the power of understanding that whatever comes out of somebody else's mouth is about them, not about you. So he offers the four horsemen of the communication apocalypse And they are defensiveness, criticism, contempt, and withdrawal. And he says every one of these is a protective mechanism for the person who engages them. So whenever anybody starts to criticize somebody else, it's because they're feeling helpless or they're feeling attacked or they're feeling fearful So he recognizes the same thing we talk about, that whatever comes out of my mouth is always going to tell you what's going on inside of me, not about the world around me. So if anger comes out of me, it tells you that there's pain, fear, or sadness in me that I don't know how to deal with in any other more productive way. And so if anger comes out of my mouth and a person around me gets defensive, they've misread the whole situation. My anger isn't about them. They don't need to get defensive. And he talks about how much more valuable it is to identify the pain, fear, or sadness for the person and to stand there, Michael Rice would say, stand as the space of love in front of them. Bill Sterling would say, make a guess for them. Might it be that you are feeling X, Y, or Z emotion because of... X, Y, or Z need that's not getting met, and holding that awareness rather than jumping into defensiveness or attack is a game changer in in our interactions with people. Well, when you live in a culture that's trained you to think other people are causing your upset, situations are what are tragic or wonderful, and it's, it's basically like you're a dried-up leaf on the wind and whatever happens around you is what causes your emotions, then it's a real trick to get people to break that first at that first level of conditioning and to step into something that you might consider as a possibility to take full full responsibility for every emotion you experience the next level is there might be specific family dynamics that have generated fear about taking responsibility or showing that you are feeling an emotion and therefore you might be considering yourself as being vulnerable to being attacked or ridiculed. And so those individual dynamics within the person may need to be addressed before they can be comfortable taking responsibility or stepping into picking up the tool of responsibility and again we talk about it as a tool because it's simply an understanding that if i look at a dynamic in my life and i i examine a pattern of activity that's gone on in my life that leads to something i don't like If I go back over that pattern and specifically single out what's my contribution here, what did I have choice on, at what point in time did I have a choice before it went sideways or haywire? If I do that, now I'm looking at something that gives me an opportunity To pick up the tool of responsibility, which means I could then have the ability to respond differently the next time a similar situation arises, because I'm looking at the part of this interaction that I actually have control over. If I can get that piece in place, and I can break the habit in my mind, the habit of thought that I've been swimming in and conditioned in that says, you made me angry, you hurt my feelings, et cetera. Now I've got a game-changing set of potential and possibilities. So we talked about that. We talked about other aspects of what might be needed for a person to be able to step into what, what for some is a brand new way of thinking about things. another aspect of the Bill Sturley book that is titled The Emotional Sobriety Solution, another aspect of it that I appreciate is that he talks about allowing yourself to tune into and feel your emotions and not try to problem solve and fix them and wipe them away and not try to blame them on others and not try to beat yourself up because you shouldn't be feeling this or that. And that the, the next potential move after I allow myself to have this emotion and this experience is to identify within my own mind what need am I experiencing that's not getting met, that's connected to this emotion arising within me. And if I can just pair up the negative emotion I'm feeling with the need I'm feeling, there's a release that happens. There's a clarification that happens. There's a softening that happens. And it's from that more released, more clear, more softened space that problem-solving then becomes a better option. But until then... Like I, I've talked at length before about the, the, the dysfunction of trying to do anything with um, content or logistics or the literal points of, of an argument or a discussion while any part of the of the discussing people while well, well, either side is in upset it is you know and, and i didn't make this up this comes from every good conflict resolution book i've ever read every good negotiating book i've ever read it tells us that the best way to screw up any good logical or rational system is to inject strong emotion So if I have an idea about what might help me or somebody else when they're upset and I say, here, why don't you try this or do that, if they're still upset, they can't even let in the value or the content of a suggestion. So the most important thing to do from my personal experience is help people identify that they're having an emotional response and offer to support them in dismantling it, offer to support them in just acknowledging it and perhaps pairing it with a perceived need that they feel is not getting met and therefore give them a sense of focus perhaps a sense of empowerment about where they might start looking for their next level of solution. But it's not offering them a solution. It's offering them a listening ear, a compassionate, empathetic ear. And helping them come to the realization that what they're experiencing is an inside job no one's creating their upset but their upsets being generated because they're experiencing the lack of a need getting met is it true that they have a need that's not getting met if it seems true to them what does it matter if it's absolutely true from an external objective source because that's how we create our emotions inside me if i'm feeling i'm disrespected and i keep pouring my mind energy into the thoughts this person's disrespecting me i will generate the anger the resentment the bitterness the hurt and it's completely irrelevant about whether or not this person actually is disrespecting me or they intended to disrespect me it's irrelevant because their their actions aren't what generate my upset my interpretation of them is what generates my upset and as long as i keep interpreting them as being disrespectful to me And I keep pouring my mind energy into thoughts like they have no right to do that. As long as that happens, I keep generating my negative emotion. Fortunately, in this work, we have the Reality Management Worksheet, and it's a powerful tool that helps me map out, anytime I have a negative emotional state, map out what it is I'm doing with my mind energy, with my thoughts that are creating my emotions. And it has me look at what's the dynamic that my mind is telling me is going on in the world right now, what's my interpretation of it. And then take a nice close look at what my mind is telling me needs to happen in order for this to be put right or for me to feel safe again or happy again, etc., and once I have those first three things I have those things mapped out in the first three steps of the reality management worksheet then I do some centering then I try and reconnect consciously to my awareness of my true nature and then I'm invited to step into the process of putting that all away and putting it aside Canceling everything I think I want. Canceling what I know is right and what really should be happening here. And just asking to be shown the hidden part of my own mind. What I brought with me into this moment that I wasn't consciously aware of. That's actually creating the upset I'm experiencing. The negative emotion I'm experiencing. Because in this work we understand nothing outside of me creates my experience. Nothing outside of me creates my emotions. Nothing outside of me causes my upset. It's simply an internal process through which I choose a set of interpretations for whatever life is unfolding in front of me. And as I step into that realization, oh, I'm making this situation mean this, that they have no right to do that, and they're disrespecting me when they do this. And I'm giving it the meaning that then fits in what my training and conditioning in the culture has taught me to think and believe. They have no right to do that. I'm right to get angry. I have every right to attack them. I'm not safe here, etc. And that mechanism inside me, that process of thought inside me is the thing that only, always, and forever creates my experience of life. Nothing else does. So you want a different angle on looking at that? Pick up a reality management worksheet. Map out what you're doing with your mind energy to create your upset. Figure out what your mind is telling you needs to happen to fix it. Cancel all of that and ask to be shown something else. you want an entirely different way to look at your consciousness as a creative force? Who and what God is? Who and what life is all about? Look at The Way of Mastery. Look at Neville Goddard's work. Look at A Course in Miracles or A Course in Love. You want a different sense of what your purpose in life is and why you might be here? Look at A Walk in the Physical by Christian Sundberg. And if you have questions about any of that or you'd like to refute any of the observations we're making, all are welcome. 563-999-3581. Call that number. Press 1. We can have a conversation. We would love to hear from you. Here's hoping this is making sense. Here's hoping that the Blog Talk radio is still working. We have another support group coming up tomorrow from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central Time. Please remember that those are free to attend and all the information you would need to join us or pass that information along to somebody else. All that information is available on the MindShiftersAcademy.org website. For now, anyway, who knows how long it will all be up. Michael Rice likes to say, this is all going to be available for eternity but there are those of us who understand that websites come and go and servers crash and life changes and so i'm just encouraging us to take advantage of it while it's here so we left off in lesson 12 in the way of mastery at the beginning of a section that's titled discover the obstacles to love the first section is titled receive the pearls of grace that's the the title of this lesson and it in the first section it highlights the fact that the way of the heart the first 12 lessons that we've been reading and talking about has been designed to bypass your cognitive or thinking mind I hope you see the similarity to what I just outlined as the reality management worksheet. Map out what you're doing with your cognitive, logical mind in the first three steps of the worksheet, and then cancel it all and tap into something else. It says right here, the way of the heart has been designed to bypass the cognitive or thinking mind and to strike at the roots of fear that abide in the depth of the mind, in a place that is, by and large, unconscious. And it says, everything, all that we do in this work seeks to dissolve that root of fear from the depth of your being. It says, all events are neutral in Lesson 9. It says, the way is easy and without effort in Lesson 10. It says, you are whole and complete exactly as you are. It says, Every judgment you make is false. In Lesson 3, it talks about removing the, the veils that obscure from you a view of your true nature by the process of forgiveness, which is a process of dismantling judgment and dismantling perception. Everything about this work is designed to help you dissolve the root of fear from the depth of your being. In the previous Lesson 10 that we read, it said, pay attention to whatever teachers you're drawn to. Hopefully you're drawn drawn to those whose messages start with love. And yet, if they veer over into messages of fear, you better act now, you better get ready, look out. Get off your duff. Look, is, the world coming to an end. Whatever that fear is, run away from those people because your true nature, your essence as consciousness can't ever be chipped, dented, rusted, faded, or broken in any way. You remain as you were created to be. What is true about you is true always. You are a part of the creative flow, the one mind. You can't ever be separated from your creator. If, if these things are true, then fear is not real. It's imagined. It's part of the dream. It's part of the illusion. So the text goes on and says, the first 12 lessons have required you to truly participate with the devotion necessary To extract the wisdom that's been offered to you. We cannot shove this wisdom down your throat. We can't make you test it out for yourself. We can't make you do the exercises. We're just offering it to you. We can't enlighten you. We can't save you. We can't resurrect you. We can't make you reborn only you can do that we can't take your power of choice and free will from you only you can do it we can do it with you you have to choose to do it and the sentence is very clear it says for never can anything be forced upon the mind of the offspring of creation? The Holy Spirit makes no effort to usurp or take away from you your freedom. You can choose to believe in evil and an outside demon. And there's is a spiritual war going on and on and on and on. You can choose to believe that your very survival depends upon who gets elected to be president next time, etc. You can choose that and generate a tremendous amount of fear. It's your choice. You have the freedom to do that. And they remind us here that in your freedom, all power under heaven and earth resides. You are creating your experience of life. So the next section is titled, Discover the Obstacles to Love. Your true nature is love. You're made of the stuff. You're swimming in it. It's the, the nature and ground of your very being. And yet, you don't often have that awareness and that experience. So what blocks that? Here's a, here's a whole section in this book about what are some of the obstacles to love. And the text reads, Grace does not descend until the creator knows you are willing to prepare a place to receive it that is why in the process of healing and awakening it is not necessary to seek for love it is only necessary to prepare the place prepare the soil by choosing to discover the obstacles to love which by the way all come down to fear and to be willing to loosen that root so that it might be removed from the garden of your consciousness. Once that's happened, then the rain of grace that purifies, transforms, awakens, and brings Christ's consciousness to the mind can descend gently. For when the rain falls upon hard ground, it strikes the soil and runs off and the garden remains barren. But the wise gardener, who has softened the soil, has reached in and begun to pull up the roots, sifted the soil, and made it soft, open and porous with the intent of bringing forth a beautiful garden. That gardener will indeed be assisted. Then the rain of grace will fall gently, without it being earned it is given freely drops of grace have been offered to you in each and every lesson some you have received some you've not even noticed some are waiting to penetrate the deeper levels of your consciousness As you continue in your willingness to release fear, it's a continuing process. It's not something I do once and it's done. I have to be awake and aware, as they talk about in this work, prior to every breath. What am I doing with my thoughts? Am I creating fear where none need be? Am I clinging to visions of myself as small and powerless The text goes on, suddenly, a pearl of grace that has not yet been received will sink deep. And then the recognition will come. The awakening will come. Suddenly, you will find yourself saying, wait a minute. This insight, this vision, this realization I've just had, that sounds like something that was in the first lesson. I think I'll go back and have another look. Oh my gosh, there it is. I wonder why I didn't notice it the first time. It is simply the natural process in which the drops of grace had not yet a place to be received. So my mind is telling me to interrupt the reading of The Way of Mastery and bring in a story from Guy Finley. And it's one of a series of three stories. The other two are escaping me right now, but maybe they'll come. But this is a story about a very powerful man who had lots of land, and he had two sons. And when he got to a certain age he, when his sons got to a certain age, he decided to break up his land into three pieces and give a third of it to each of his sons. And he did so, and they seemed to be pleased. And about a year later, year and a half later, two years, whatever it was, they were at a family party, and the one son comes up to him and says, hey, hey, Dad. With a real kind of a negative tone, abruptly negative tone, his father says, yes, son. And he says, I heard you were over at Joe's helping him plant seed and, and, and work his farm. And the father says, yes, that's right. And he says, well, that's not fair. You've never been over to my place helping me. And the father said, well, son, isn't it obvious? And the son says, no, it's not obvious. Why are you helping him and you're not helping me? And the father said, well, son, Joe, your brother, has been out there tilling the soil, removing the rocks, fertilizing the soil, letting it breathe, and preparing for the planting. You haven't done anything with the land I gave you. That's what this book is talking about. The greatest wisdom in the world might be in the novel neville goddard teachings or in the way of mastery or in the course in miracles and we might even read it and yet if we are not working in our own consciousness in our own habits of thought with our own trauma energies with what we choose to use our mind energy for and therefore value if we're not working with that if we're not willing to soften it to say listen if whatever i'm doing isn't working i need to try something else and keep finding different ways to try something else if i'm not willing to do that i'm not making a space within me for the christ mind to come for for the drops of grace to be received if I'm not actively choosing to spend more and more of my mind energy on what would it be like for me to have an entirely different response to life, then it doesn't make sense for me to expect I'm going to have a different experience of life because I'm holding a pattern of activity, of thought, of what I value that has been producing the life I've developed and as long as I keep holding on to that it's going to keep creating and offering up to me that very same life pattern so the text here goes on and says understand then and this is of great importance as we move into the next part of the way of mastery Understand, then, that all that transpires from this point on actually rests on how well the gardener has cultivated the soil and used the tools that have been given. If these tools have not been utilized, the soil remains hard and the drops of rain run off and they pool on the side of the garden waiting for the soil to be properly prepared. Of all that has been given that can continue and will continue to serve you. The greatest of all these offerings has been the simple five-minute practice of abiding as Christ. Observing all that you see, all that you feel, all that you think. As though perfectly awakened Christ was the only one sitting in the chair. Finding a way, as it says in the promise before the book even starts, finding a way to look lovingly upon every place that fear has made a home in your mind. Because the awakened Christ consciousness would not look at something and judge it negatively. One of my favorite books I've mentioned for years is The Mirror Theory. And and it's a favorite book not because it's the world's greatest book or anything. It just came into my life at the perfect time for me to start letting it in and make shifts. And one of the stories in that book or one of the, the interactions in that book between Betsy and the teacher, Charlie, is Betsy said something like, I hate my garbage history, Charlie. And Charlie said, well... Why not give it a name with more reverence? And, and she said, well, what am I supposed to do about it? I hate it. It was horrible. All these disruptions and all these ways I acted improperly. And, and Charlie said, well, give it a name with more reverence. And Betsy said, well, like what? And Charlie said, well, how about calling it the love of God in search of self? that ties in my mind directly into the promise at the beginning of this work look back on everything you've been through in your life where you have generated fear or any kind of a negative judgment about yourself or anyone else and find a way to look lovingly on the thoughts you have about that past experience when this happened When I kicked that boy when he was four years old just to see him cry, that was me as the love of God in search of myself. I had yet to discover or I had temporarily forgotten my true nature as love, as a being of brilliance and light. Of all that's been given to you in the first 12 lessons and of everything we're going to continue to give to you through the next 35 lessons, The greatest is this simple practice of abiding as Christ sitting in your chair and observing all that you see, all that you feel, all that you think as though you were a perfectly awakened Christ consciousness sitting in the chair. And there is nothing else. There is no woundedness, there is no bitterness, there is no weakness, there is no I'm not smart enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not sexy enough, I'm not spiritual enough. Simply viewing everything that arises just for five minutes at a time with the perfect allowance and surrender and acceptance of the awakened Christ mind. Understanding that there is only the one conscious mind. There is only creation extending. That all of these other judgments and dreams of separation and actions that are less than loving are the product of an illusion, of fear. So the text here goes on and says, I know that this sounds simplistic for you, and yet the way is easy and without effort complexity is born of the world, of the world's mind, of the history of human beings living through trauma and mistake, energies off the mark, etc. Complexity is not born from the mind of the Creator. Therefore, continue well in that practice and allow it to be the foundation from which the soil is prepared the roots of fear are loosened. And this will happen even in ways that you cannot comprehend with the thinking mind. For the roots of fear are not merely ideas. They are the effects of the ideas. They're energetic impressions that have been allowed to penetrate deep into the consciousness. And if you will engage a practice... It will soften the soil. It will loosen those roots. It will do so in ways your conscious, logical mind cannot track or comprehend. This reminds me of when we were doing the darshans in the support group years ago. And the darshans are just a series of video chats with the gentleman, J.M., who channeled the Way of Mastery, who was basically doing in that work what we're doing here, reading the Way of Mastery and going deeper into sometimes each word, sometimes each phrase, sometimes just a section. And in that, he talked about these exercises that are offered as a way of loosening the ego's hold on us. Not destroying the ego. Not attacking the ego. And at one point he said, if you do these exercises, the ego will be lessened in its capacity and its intensity to disrupt your life. And then he said, now, make sure you pay attention to what your mind is saying. Because most people are going to hear this and say, oh good, I need to attack my ego. I need to shred my ego. I need to get rid of my ego. I need to drop my ego. And he was very clear about how that can't happen. You can't ever dismantle your ego for the simple reason that the part of your mind that says, I will dismantle my ego, is the ego and it cannot ever dismantle itself. That's just another way of talking about sustained incoherence, which Michael Rice has in every worksheet process. That's a term coined by David Bohm, the physicist, that talks about using an activity, and as you use an activity or a tool, it creates a problem. And you don't like the problem, and you say, oh, Maybe I should just use this tool more to try and get rid of the problem. You can't ever think your way out of a prison of thoughts. You can't ever dig your way out of a prison made of butter with a shovel made of butter. So, I thank you all for being here and listening. We've got about a minute left. I don't see, or maybe two. I don't see Chini on the board yet, but hopefully she will arrive. Um, it's appreciated for everybody who's listening, and I happen to have the direct experience that the more I use these tools, the better my life gets. So here's hoping that that same experience is open for you. I will turn on the microphone for and welcome Jeannie Rice and remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. Welcome, Jeannie Rice.
1: Thank you, Dr. Tia.
0: You're welcome and deserving. Have a wonderful show.
1: Thanks. So welcome everybody to the second hour of Mind Shifters Radio. And today is Wednesday, February the 7th, 2024. And our call-in number is 563-999-3581. And press 1 and that puts you into queue to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. And we'll give Michael a moment to dial in. We actually had some questions come in yesterday, but it was a little late to answer them in the chat. They came in through the chat room. And so uh, uh, I printed them out, and um, I'm trying to turn Podbeam on at the same time. Okay. So we welcome you to the show. And when Michael gets on, he's going to address those questions. And then you who are listening, if you have questions, then press 1. Welcome, Julia, in the chat room. And uh, we will do day number 18, talking about the Enlightenment and Aramaicisms. So it's... It's flying by, <laughs> and we've got lots of more material to cover than what we've already covered, and so stay with us, and uh, we've, if you're out there on Podbean, you can ask questions there in the chat room, and of course, if you're in the chat room here on Blog Talk, you can ask your questions. In both places, I will read them to Michael, and he will address them, and if you're on the switchboard, press 1. So... We hope you're having a good day on this Wednesday. It's absolutely beautiful here. Michael has actually been out in the garden and and doing uh, getting things ready for spring. We're still mulching up leaves and and stuff and putting it on top of the gardens and Hello Yanka, welcome. And uh, so getting ready before too long we'll be planting. So it seems like it was a short winter, but it was definitely cold enough to kill any critters (laughs) that were around. Um, Yes, you can listen on Podbean. Um, We had given instructions if you download the Podbean to your phone. It doesn't require you calling in or anything, and it will actually, if you click that you're following us on Podbean, and it will show both the blog talk um, station of MindShifters Radio, and that's the picture of Michael and myself, and then it will show... um, a glowing heart, like what's on the app, and that's the PodBeam app. And it will let you know, if you click that you're following us, it will let you know when we go live anytime. And if I ever have issues with PodBeam, then um, I will just copy the recording from MindShifters over to it. But so far, we have been able to record what I've got a microphone, actually, in front of me, and so I try to be really quiet, and I have my phone on speaker so that it can hear whoever is talking on the phone, and it seems to pick up pretty good. It's got a little bit of a metallic sound to it, but um, so, yeah, give that a try. Download Podbean on your phone. As long as you have internet, use any of your cell minutes or anything like that, and you can ask questions in the chat room, and so I've got them both going simultaneously, and it says, "What if I don't have notifications turned on Well, then you won't get notified. <laughs> That's simple enough, um but you can turn on the you can click your app if you've got it downloaded to your phone and um it will open up, and then you'll see if you have clicked that you're following us, you'll see the glowing heart and it'll have a note saying that mind shifters is you know, live or whatever. So it'll give you, once you open the app, it'll be in there. If you have clicked that you're following us, it'll pop up automatically. So I'm going to welcome Michael at this time.
2: Thank you, dear heart. Delighted to be here. And honored to have each of you participating in this conversation as we move forward and going to deeper and deeper understanding of this awesome first-century Aramaic gift that was given to the world thousands of years ago. I have some questions, but I want to, uh, from a, an email that uh, that Sean sent, thank you for that. I'll look forward to covering or getting into that, and or if perhaps you have the chance to do it live, a live conversation would be good. And I'd love to go back and do the, uh, the group at some point, too, for... Uh, that you'd set up for us previously, if that's something that fits. But I want to continue with this passage at the bottom of page 23. And the passage is about, well, the way the Greeks translated. Well, let's go to the Greek translation. So Matthew 6.22. In... One of the Greek translations, at least, and and this is, uh, I think it's the uh, King James. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And of course kind of ridiculous how can light be guard- darkness obviously that word does can't be light otherwise it wouldn't it be an oxymoron to say that if the light that is in you is darkness but you remember yesterday we talked about the aramaic and it's talking about the guide that you follow and so if we look at a few different renditions of that oh, okay. Phone's running a little slow here. Come on. So the new international version, and I want to dance around this from several different versions just to kind of get back and and you can see how the subtleties that are missed, if you don't have the Aramaic understanding, just mean that everything that is meaningful about it is lost. So the... New International says, but if your eyes are unhealthy, <clears throat> I guess you should go see an optometrist. No, no, that's not what it says. <clears throat> Pardon me. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Like, what? in what universe does that make any sense? If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And then the English Standard Translation says, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then the light in you is darkness. How great is the darkness? And then the Berean translates it as, but if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Let's just see how there are any other variations. Anyway, you can see how they're dancing around, trying to get to this. The Amplified Bible actually comes much closer although it still doesn't hit the mark of what exactly this Yeshua is telling us, the Amplified 50 says, but if your eye is bad, and then it has, in brackets, spiritually blind, your whole body will be full of darkness, devoid, in brackets, devoid of God's precepts. So if the very light inside of, your, in, of you, and then it says, your, in brackets again, your inner self, your heart, your conscience is darkness, how great and terrible is that darkness, Just looking through to see if there are any other... That pretty much covers it in terms of each of these, you know, trying to take a shot out of the Greek and make sense of it. And, of course, you have to remember that if if you're in America and you decide that you want to publish a new Bible, and you know, how many hundreds of them are there, in order to be able to copyright your work, that... Book has to be at least twenty percent different than anything else on the market. So, so much for the idea of the scriptural saying: "This is no one would change one jot or tittle," which are the smallest markings in the uh, in the Aramaic characters. Contemporary English version reads it. But when your eyes are bad, everything is dark. If the light inside of you is dark, you surely are in the dark. Okay. The Dewey Reams translates it as, but if thy eye be evil, thy whole body shall be darksome. I don't even know what darksome is. If then the light that is in thee be darkness, then the darkness itself, how great shall it be? Oh, here's the good news translation. But if your eyes are no good, you need glasses? No. If your eyes are no good, your body will be in darkness. So if the light in you is darkness, how terribly dark will it be? That kind of looks like it covers a lot. There there's so many different translations. But if you're in the Net Bible, if your eye is diseased, the Net Bible is the one we mentioned the other day where they, they say in the uh, second edition, we changed some things so that it complied with our evangelical beliefs. I mean, it's just, how bizarre is that? So the Net Bible says, but if your eye is diseased, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? New Revised Standard Version, but if your eye is unhealthy? New Heart, but if your eye, New Heart English, if your eye is bad? Webster's Bible, if your eye be evil? Weymouth, but if your eyesight is bad, your whole body will be dark. If, however, the very light within you is darkness, how dense must the darkness be? So we get a a look. I'm just looking at one other translation here. You can see what they're dancing around, what they're trying to achieve, And, and the... Whole context of that talking about there is for where your treasure is that the passage before in 621 says for where your treasure is there your heart will also be in other words your attention your investment in life will be where your treasure is and then he talks about the things that people treasure the source of the things that people treasure one of them is According to this, the, the Greek, it's got to do with your eyes. Nothing whatsoever to do with your eyes. Well, in a sense, we can, we'll look at that. And then it follows up and says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So then let's go back to this passage as it's rendered from the Aramaic. Instead of the eye, what it's saying is the, the, the light of earthly life is perception. So remember we said over and over again, the world believes that what's painted on the inside of their eyeballs, the world they think they see outside of them, is a product of what's firing in their brain. And it's a reflection of what's held in carbon-based memory, remembering the carbon-based memory. If we take your, your so-called body into a chemist's shop and said, tell me what elements are here, tell me what kind of atoms are here, they tell you that the base element is carbon. And of course, if you look at a carbon atom, what's the number of carbon? 666. Anybody familiar with that number? 666? What does it mean? It means stuck in the past. So there are two minds available. There's the mind of man, which in Aramaic, Yeshua, there's all kinds of stuff about this this creature called Satan, but Yeshua gives you his concept in the passage where he's talking to Peter before he heals the high priest servant. Remember, Peter has is trying to stop the whole scenario that Yeshua set up from taking place, and you know he turns to Yeshua and he kind of like, oh, we're we're going to stop this, and 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 Yeshua turns to Peter actually literally calls Peter Satan. Now, if you knew the Aramaic culture, a man whose prized student was Peter, he would never call him anything to do with that creature with the red suit, the tail, and the pitchfork. That would just be like such an outrageous offense and a way to treat your neighbor but when you understand, and, and in that passage, Yeshua explains exactly what he means by Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you think in the mind of man. You're, thinking, you're, you're looking at the pictures painted on the inside of your eyes, perception that come from carbon-based memory, the body-mind unit. So we have these generational patterns of information stored in us, And when life comes along and resonates those patterns, then up comes whatever's stored from the past in the mind. What was Peter doing? He was stuck in the past of fear. And so he's saying, get behind me, Satan. Stop dragging me out of my purpose, which comes from the mind of Christ. Two minds to deal with here. One is the mind literally of the creator of love, and one is the mind of the past. When we get stuck in the pictures painted on the inside of our eyeballs, and that's called perception, the construct of the mind, then we're stuck in the past. We're stuck in darkness. No matter how good the information is, it's still the past. So what Yeshua's pointing out here is that perception is a guide for you, but it will never give you the actuality of the creator's creation. So the light of your earthly life is perception. Therefore, if your perception is without fault, what would that mean? That would mean that you were following the first law, which is rachma. If love is what's fueling your mind, if love is what is behind your perception, then there's going to be no error in your perception. You'll never get the truth from perception. You'll never get a present moment from perception. You can correct your mind so that your mind always gives you accurate information about the present moment, but it can't be the present moment because what's painted on the inside of your eyeballs is always from the past. But it is a light. It is a guide if it's fueled by love. So back again to the ermic, If your perception is unfit, In other words, if there's hostility or fear, if your perception is not based in rakma, if you are not following the first law, and remember, when they ask Yeshua, what's most important in all this law you're teaching us about? What's most important in the way it works? The word law not meaning the rule of a superior, but the way it works. And he says, not love your neighbor, not love God as yourself. He says you've got to have rakma, a condition in the mind, a filter in the frontal lobes of the brain that is a gateway for love to fuel your mind. If love is fueling your mind, then your mind will be of support to you. The light in you is darkness. In other words, the guide you follow, the perception you follow is darkness. What is darkness? Any Anything other than love, any form of hostility or fear. You don't have to know one scintilla about what's going on in the world to know that you are in blockage of truth. If hostility or fear is the accompaniment of whatever is painted on the inside of your eyeballs. So if the light for you is darkness, how deep will your darkness become? In other words, what kind of crazy behaviors will you do based in hostility or fear-based perception? When hostility or fear-based perception moves in you, unless you're in physical danger and you have to get out of the way, don't do anything except correct your mind. Get your perception back on track because that's what tends to become the driver for behavior. So again, let's read the whole passage in one con- one piece. And, and remember that he's talking about where is your treasure? Most people treasure what's in their minds from the past. He says, if that's where your treasure is, that's where you're going to invest. If the light of earthly life is perception, pardon me, the light or the guide of earthly life is perception. Therefore, if your perception is without fault, your whole life shall be enlightened. If your perception be unfit, your whole life shall be darkened by it. And if the light for you is darkness, then how deep will your behavior, how deep will your darkness become? So let's let's give us a, a simple example. We talked yesterday about the fact that there are three different filters. There's rock, three different filters over the frontal lobes of the brain, three over the back. Rachma is the main one over the frontal lobes. That's the gateway for love to enter the human form. Just because there is a human form standing in front of you doesn't mean there's a human being active there. If Rachma is not open, then the human being, love, is buried and that person's life is going to be run by their perception. And they will substitute the pictures painted on the inside of their eyeballs for you. And if they have unresolved pain, look out, because it's coming down the pike. They're going to project it into the brain's image of you at some point, and you're going to tend to become the problem in their lives. And so this work is about cleaning that whole game up. But let's let's take a look at uh, what the three filters would look like. So frontal lobe, Rachma, fear, hostility. When Rachma is active, the frontal lobes of the brain intentions are where the raw materials for goals come from. You know, we live in a culture, that there are books out there telling us about the power of intention. No, no, no. That's, that's another game from the perceptual mind. Intention has no power. Dan McDougald, one of his favorite things, and I can see him saying this, he said all the time. He said, Intention can no more move a muscle than a shadow can carry a stone can't happen. But it's important. Why is it important? Because it's the raw material of your goals. So the quality, the building blocks of your goals become really important. And if your goals are keyed to love, then perception is going to flow through a second filter in the mind, in the back of the brain the perceptual area of the brain, and that that filter in Aramaic was called Kuba. So we've got Rachma and Kuba. As I said yesterday, the two together were called perfect love. Perfect love casts out fear. You can't produce, remember, over 300 times we're told in the scriptures, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. And yet we've got people out there saying fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Like, hello, this is the perceptual mind projecting its darkness. Perfect Love, rockman Kuba, guess what? Your mind can't create, cannot generate a fear-based perceptual construct. This is gone. How do you like that? It all ties together. And it's so profoundly powerful. So there's the matching set of filters to what's in the frontal lobes of the brain are in the back of the brain. Kuba and hostility or fear. If in the frontal lobe, hostility is what is moving, then a person's intentions are going to be destructive. If fear is what, that, what is active, then a person's intentions are going to be negative. If Rachma is what is active, then a, a person's intentions are going to be keyed to love. That's the frontal lobe. So now you've got a way to keep... Here's what Yeshua is giving people in a, prop, in, a, in a simple format. He's giving you a way to make sure that all of the building blocks of your goals which will ultimately lead to your behavior, which produces your life, will be key to love if you follow the first law. Here's how life works. That's the meaning of the word law in Aramaic. Then, once you've selected an intention, and people say, oh, well, you know, what's the difference in intention, a goal? Well, it's just about the difference between night and the day. Because once you select an intention and make a commitment to it, you turn it into a goal. Now you've got this very thing that drives perception, the light for your earthly life. Goals are really important. Intentions as raw material are really important. This guy's giving a formula for exactly how to keep the human mind on track with its human life. I mean, this is, you know, to find me this in psychology somewhere today. Good luck. Find me it somewhere other than in the understanding of the Aramaic words of Yeshua. Good luck. So once the building blocks are based in love and you've you set a goal, then kuba becomes the active filter for what gets painted on the inside of your eyeballs. Only units of perceptual memory keyed to love will be used to build your perception. That's what this passage is talking about as that's called enlightened. Enlightened perception. Therefore, if your perception is without fault, your whole life shall be enlightened. It all starts there. And what is enlightened perception? Enlightened perception is the stepping stone for the being, the stepping stone for the human, the created essence that we are, to walk into... The actuality of the world is the creator created. It's a tool. It's not meant to run our lives. The secrets are not hidden in the mind. They're hidden by the mind. So back to our example. We've all known the person, let's say the the lady who was in a relationship and she's being horribly abused. You talk to her over and over and over again and she lives in terror and trauma. Her fear filter is the active filter in her intentions. That resonates fear along with the behaviors that are happening in her world so that the fear filter is what's active in over. Now, the only quality of perceptual construct her mind can produce when fear is the active filter is perceptual constructs, pictures painted on the inside of her eyeballs that are threatening to her. So whatever her object of attention is, or his or anybody I mean I mean you think about it, we we've all heard about the six foot six, two hundred and eighty pound guy that shook his precious little infant to death. Cancel the thought. How does that happen? The two hundred and eighty pound muscle bound monster of a guy who could take anybody in the world looks at his child through fear And he is threatened, and he acts, behaves, his earthly life expresses his reaction to threat. So everywhere she looks, she sees threat. Even when you call her and try to offer her support, what does she do? But you spend time with her you gain trust. That's one of the first steps because in trust, one can start to shift out of the fear and hostility filters and start to shift into love. You will be perceived differently if you're talking to this woman when she's functioning with love active in her mind than when she's functioning with fear active in her mind. So you talk and you support her and you give her the the encouragement and the confidence that she can get out of that situation where she's being so badly abused. And she does. And she's got all the stories of all the horrors that happened. And then, you know, you got her to a shelter and she's safe. Three months later, when the fear, the resonance of the fear in her mind had died away, did she say to you? Now she's back in darkened perception. There is no truth in her perception. What if she say, oh, I want to go back. I love him. She cannot remember all of the threat. Well, she can kind of remember it, but it doesn't mean anything perceptually until the fear filter is active. So her behavior changes. In that fear state, she can't do anything about anything but getting the hell out of Dodge. Three months later, she can't think about anything about getting back there because she's in love. And she goes back. Doesn't take very long, and she remembers, because the fear filter's active, she remembers why she had to get out. All of a sudden, her mind's producing perceptual constructs based in threat again, rather than those keyed to love. And then one day you were talking to her, and she became so enraged. What just happened? Her hostility filter went into activity. Now I don't care if she's only five foot two and he's six foot six and two hundred and eighty pounds. When that hostility filter is active in her, her mind cannot produce any awareness of a threat from him. Unless her mind shifts back to fear. All the threats offered mean nothing, and she'll tear him apart And then hostility filter. Because when hostility is active in the mind, all of the pit on the inside of one's eyeballs are about irritation. Again, no matter what the object of attention. How can a parent become so irritated with a precious newborn? How, how is that possible? Hmm? They say, well, the newborn irritated me. But what they really mean is I have a heart full of irritation and my child resonated that in me. I had no idea how to keep Rachma and Kuba active in my mind and I went to hostility and I felt threatened and then I went to just total irritation. That's the hostility filter. And now one reaches out, behaves based on the irritation dynamics of their family system, whatever the power-person dynamic was that they haven't resolved, takes over, and the very thing they said they'd never do to their child, they're now doing to their child. The very thing they said, boy, I'll never be like my power-person, father, mother, is exactly what they become. And that's the codependent dynamic that needs to be rectified in order for us to heal. And all of this requires resetting the whole physiological device called a body-mind unit. Guide for your earthly life is perception. Therefore, if your perception is based in rachma, in love, without fault, your whole life shall be enlightened. If your guide, your perception is based in hostility or fear, your whole life shall be darkened by it. If the light that is the guide for you is darkness, how deep will your darkness become? That's what all those different translations were trying to grasp. But without the brain cells, it's not possible. And it takes commitment and it takes work. You know, this goes hand in hand with what's called in in the medical field the sympathetic dominant state. Sympathetic dominance is a state where fear, fight, flight, freeze, fawning mode, it's, it's called in the world. But what happens in that mode is that blood, for survival's sake, blood is shunted away from, and this is probably the most important part of it, from the higher centers of the brain. Blood flow is taken away from there. Blood flow is taken away from digestion. Blood flow is taken away from reproduction. Blood flow is taken away from regeneration. Blood flow is taken away from rest. Everything to do with rest and digest is shut down because blood flow is drawn away to supply blood, oxygen, nutrition to the arms and the legs and to make the lungs work so somebody can fight or run. called sympathetic dominance. A lot of people hear about this work and they're in sympathetic dominance and they start to move. And one of the things that has to happen in order for you to get your life back on track and get these higher centers operating in the perceptual mind is you've got to get blood flow to that part of the brain. A lot of people hear about it and they go, oh yeah, I'd love to do it. But it takes time to break down the congestion that's built up, especially for somebody that's been in chronic fear or hostilities or excess stress. Chronic sympathetic dominance means that the pathways to all of the places where blood flow is needed but have been deprived, those pathways, when it's chronic, when it's long-term, end up becoming congested, and the congestion has to be cleared out in order for blood flow and nutrition to get to those parts of the brain and most people it's too much work for them they won't do it unfortunately hopefully you know one of the reasons for this show is to inspire people to support people to get people to understand what's going on so that they can do what it takes to restore themselves to what this passage is suggesting and if you come from a a family that's been chronically infiltrated with hostility, fear, punishment, rage, condemnation. Just the very idea, the horrific idea that's fed to so many people that you are a sinner will put you into sympathetic dominance. A horrendous assault to a child. Yeshua said, you know, be careful. You offend one of those little ones. Boy, it'd be better if a millstone were put around your neck. And yet preacher after preacher after preacher after preacher after preacher after preacher preacher is pounding that idea into children. Locking them into sympathetic dominance. get what? Higher center of the brain don't work very well. They become very good slaves. Become very good servants. And unfortunately that's a dynamic that is is powerfully existent in our world and needs to be faced and, and dealt with. Fortunately, there are a lot of people in the same circles who are really, truly about shifting into that place of love and supporting through service that presence of love in the world. But all of this ties together. You know, one of the reasons why we uh, use the and suggest that people get uh, the device called the Avicen is what the Avicen does is by warming the blood increasing microcirculation, it gets that blood flow to the higher centers of the brain. It gets the the congestion in the microcirculatory system. You know, a capillary, which is the only thing that gets blood and oxygen nutrition to a cell, is somewhere between their sizes are approximately from a tenth to one hundredth the thickness of hair. If that gets congested, it's pretty tough to get something to flow through there. And that's what the Addison does. It is a physical form of forgiveness in that by warming the blood, it creates a a mechanism where the blood is thinned, the flexibility, what they call the uh, erythrocyte deformability of a blood cell, you know a red blood cell, is larger than the opening in most capillaries. The red blood cell can't just go into the capillary because it's larger. It needs to be able to fold. One of the horrendous things that people do in this culture is they eat um, waste, rancid, junk vegetable oils. There's only one vegetable oil you want to touch. It's called olive oil. Touch nothing else. Put nothing else in your body because that rancid fat and it, it gets fat or rancid very quickly will cause a stiffness in that erythrocyte. And erythrocyte just means red blood cell. Now it can't fold. Erythrocyte deformability sounds like it might be a disease, but no. It actually speaks about the ability of a properly functioning brain cell, or blood cell, pardon me, can fold itself and move inside the capillary to get into the cell to deliver the oxygen nutrition that it needs. One of the things the Abyssin does is it increases Erythrocyte deformability; it reduces the viscosity of the blood. Blood is a non-Newtonian liquid. The most uh, easily understood non-Newtonian liquid is molasses. And you know, we have a saying: "Slower than molasses in February." What? It, what does that mean? It means you know, it's cold. That stuff doesn't pour very well. Blood's the same, it's a non-Newtonian liquid. So by using the natural mechanism of the body, which is, an, or, you know, in, in one case, one of the major defenses of the body is a fever, it raises the temperature of the blood. That reduces the viscosity. It puts blood where otherwise blood doesn't flow. When you get blood where blood does, isn't flowing, you get oxygen. When you get oxygen, the organisms that are building up, because the oxygen isn't present, all of a sudden they get flushed out, they get wiped out, they can't survive. So it all, all ties together, and, and this is all under the control of the mind. Even though sympathetic dominance, people say, well, that's a totally physical thing. It is a totally physical thing, and it is 100% caused by the mind. That's why you've got to work on all levels wholly, work with each aspect. So I hope that fits for that passage. It's such an important one. And you know, to me, if we knew nothing else about Yeshua's teachings but that few lines, we would mm-hmm. have a leg up on the whole world. If we can get that to every mind, heart, and being on the planet, then we will have a world that functions peacefully in abundance, will disappear divorce, will disappear war, will disappear starvation, and will restore human life to every mind, heart, and being on the planet. That's the objective of this work. That's why we're here doing this show. So remember, we've got reality and actuality. Reality is a perceptual construct of the mind. It's a picture painted on the inside of your eyeballs. It is always reflective of the past. It can never contain the present. It can be a stepping stone into the present, but it will not contain the present. It can contain accurate information about the present, called enlightened. Then it will be a stepping stone into the actuality. And that's what we're here to support. So hopefully that stirs a few thoughts and moves some, some energy for everybody. And if specifically tied to that, if anyone has a question or a thought, put up a hand and let's talk about it. And see if we can clarify or maybe you can help us clarify, understand something we haven't thought of yet. So if you're on one of those stations where we can't see or a calling number is 563-999-3581. If you call that number, you'll be listening to the show directly. And then if you raise your hand, you do that by pushing one. Jeannie will know you want to have a conversation, she'll introduce you by your area code, and we will answer your questions if we can. So, Miss Jeannie, do we have anybody on the phone queue with a hand up? Anything happening in the chat room?
1: No, it's all quiet.
2: All is quiet on the Western Front. Okay, cool. Just give me one second here. All right. So we have some questions from Sean, who sent Jeannie an email. Thank you for that. First, uh, first thought that, uh, that Sean puts out there is, in quotes, and he breathed the breath of life into them and says that that makes more sense now that this whole thing when you go to the Aramaic and this is, you know, Sean, I'm, I'm with you 100%, when you go to the Aramaic everything that was kind of, you know, like, gee, that didn't, I mean, it says something, but it's something about it doesn't make sense. Everything comes into perspective and view and is becomes totally reasonable, logical, rational, sensible and When you get it from the Aramaic, it's it's just you know, it's just so so much more functional. So what Sean is saying is that quote, he breathed the breath of life into them makes more sense. It's not some magical, mystical thing. But breathing through can correct effects of an energy pattern known as Staten, if I understand correctly. Yes, again, first of all, when they said the veil of the temple must be rent-in-twain. The temple is your body-mind unit. They weren't talking about a purple curtain in the church. The veil of the temple must be rent-in-twain means the barrier between the subconscious and the unconscious must be opened. The barrier is built by holding the breath. That's how we acquire and get stuck in the past about something, by holding the breath. And so restoring the breath, and that's why we do a monthly still point breathing club. Because where people have spent lifetimes and generations holding their breath, the restoration of the breath done properly opens that veil and allows when the safest space or pardon me, the space is safe and the support allows or supports the the shifting, moving into the ability to process through whatever is hidden under the veil. And in this work, we define processing as the ability to hold love, conscious, active, and present when something less than love comes up. So Satan, again, is the mind of man. It's perception. It's the constructs of the mind, according to Yeshua in the Aramaic. So yes, if there's something painted on the inside of your eyeballs and you utilize your breath properly, then the veil, the barrier that keeps hidden energetic patterns out of you opens, and then whatever is in, of error in the mind comes forward, and by exposure to the presence of active love, it's dissolved. So then uh, Sean asked the question, so is Satan both the mind, the hinderer, and a being that can project images and frequencies? Well, I wouldn't, I'd take the word being out of that, uh, of that sentence, uh, Sean. Uh, Satan is the definition in Aramaic would be the resistor, one who misleads. So you ask somebody to be responsible for what's going on in their world. And what does the average person do? The average person says, no, no, starts to hold their breath, and then goes on to tell you their, the story of their perception, the construct of their mind the darkness that tells them that somebody else is the problem in their lives. Remember when we, we define denial, denial is the act of thinking or speaking, as so though something outside of you is the cause of what's moving inside of you. So when you say, I'm responsible for what I set up in that situation... You tell me that. If I'm the average person, I'll tell you you're crazy. You don't know any better. Let me tell you what really happened. All the while, I'm holding my breath. I'm in denial. And now, the picture that's painted on the inside of my eyeballs, the false construct based in darkness, hostility or fear, that tells me about how it's built. It's a problem in my life. And so that would be Satan. So not a a, a being it's simply the content of carbon-based memory from the past that that's that driven by goals structures itself out of the frequencies stored within the structure from the past within the mind which is every, the mind functions through every cell in the body and those energetic patterns driven by goals create these images pictures of bodies and situations and things that we think are happening in the world but are really, once again, just painted on the inside of our eyeballs. That would be Satan. Satan. There wouldn't be any being component to that. It would actually be the exact opposite, non-being. In fact, Satan would be an expression of what we call the non-being mind. Yeshua says, you know, at one point, in order for you to live, you've got to die. He's not saying put a gun to your head. He's saying there is a self in you that is false, that is based in perception, and is not true. It is part of your past, and that self has to go. So the non-being self would be a component of this resistor, one who misleads. And then Sean goes on to say, it's truly neat knowing the history of the Caboris. It is. Uh, I I just feel so blessed that I got to spend so many hours with, with Dan over the years. I mean, for 15 years, we worked together pretty much shoulder to shoulder. He was in, in Albany, Georgia, and I would make three or four or five trips there every year. And he would come up at least once every summer and teach with me laws of living at uh, at Heartland. And it was just such amazing, precious time. When I wasn't there, that was back when, uh, when you had to pay uh, long-distance charges on your phone. And when we were doing laws of living, we would spend hours every day on the phone going over fine, fine, fine points. And my phone bills back then would be twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen hundred dollars a month. that was a pretty intense time but yes you're you're right uh, that it was very rich time and then i, I like this suggestion especially with a i you've got me thinking here about what we might be able to do with the uh, the text what um, what Sean's suggesting is would be able to take the photocopies of the, the manuscript, transcribe the old Aramaic into digital text, and then run it through uh, to translate using current definitions, taking those first century definitions. And that might be a, a, an interesting project to do with AI. You know, the the work that was done on the Kavuris, uh the project basically ran out of money back in the 70s. And Dan was not about to sell out. There were people who wanted to, oh, I want to invest in this. I want to, like it's a business proposition. And uh, there was just no interest in that. And so uh, you, you've got me thinking about what we might be able to do by taking some of these high-res images and using uh, AI to uh, to maybe continue the uh, translation work. So thank you for that thought. And he's suggesting perhaps getting a college class to do with that to do that, and uh, we'll, we'll see what, what might come together there. That's a great idea. Thank you. And then uh, the question comes up: Are we to live as if the doctrines of the rapture and the millennial kingdom are not so? My, my take on that would be that I have no answer to that. For me, that would come from or lead us into the place of trying to figure it out. I don't think we're at the point where figuring it out is going to work yet because for most people, perception is still so darkened. And he goes on to say, it's like as if the the Near East idioms were lost and we made entire denominations out of false understandings. Yes. I mean, you know, we've got 32,000 different sects of so-called Christianity all saying we've got the answer. And many of them, I mean, you take a look today, what, what, what many so-called denominations or so-called Christian um, fields of expression are basically wanting to set up a Taliban-style theocratic government. In America. Uh, And if you look at the history of theocracies in the world, they haven't ever done very well. So per the Aramaic, Sean goes on to say, we should be living in heaven now. Well, if Yeshua was correct when he said, if somebody tells you the kingdom of heaven. Now remember that In Aramaic, the kingdom of heaven isn't someplace off in the sky. The words kingdom of heaven are much more properly translated as the community of love. So he says it's here, it's now, and he says it's within you. So yeah, that's where we're designed to live. That's what this work is about restoring. And all of the Greek ideas uh, become now another stumbling block to understanding. So instead, he goes on to say, we've been tricked into letting our minds wait for an imaginary world to come. What is the adjusted, correct view of the end times in the thousand-year reign? Well, I think that it means that we're going to collapse individually and collectively the constructs of the mind based in hostility or fear, and we're going to get to enter into the present, and, you know, there's a medical person that uh, we did some work with back a few years ago, and, and her take, she was actually, uh, worked at the uh, National Institute of Mental Health, and her take was, talking about what was referred to as the Kingdom of Heaven, was that it's entered two by two, that it takes two people, together to move into a new level of energy. Two people connected energetically to enhance the vitality sufficiently to move life, an individual's life to the next level. And so, and I agree with you, the next sentence that uh, Sean writes is, it it just does not seem like Yeshua pointed towards doom and gloom and destruction. No. No, he didn't. He did point toward the healing crisis. What's going to happen when you step in and start to deal with what's in you? And that we're capable of eradicating the mind of Satan, the mind of the past, perception, the constructs of the mind, and treating perception as it's designed to be treated. Restore Satan to its proper place. A footstool. It's supposed to be your servant, just like your computer is a servant. You don't do what your computer tells you to do. You ask the computer to do things for you that you know the computer has the capacity to do. And you don't ask it to do things that it doesn't have the capacity to do. So yeah, I think that individually and collectively we'll start moving into deeper and deeper spaces where we experience ourselves as conscious, active, present love as we're designed to do. And then uh, there's some thoughts about family systems, and one of the one of the sentences that you uh, that you put here that I'd feedback, Sean, would be a place to do a worksheet or two when you say that a, a, a certain person had no business uh, becoming over-emotional about it. Well, when I make that judgment, I'm, I'm probably playing out of a power person dynamic. I would invite you to consider whether or not your power person uh, ever uh, restricted you or took some form of aggressive action toward you when you became over-emotional. And the person who becomes over-emotional has no choice about that whatsoever. You can't just say, oh, well, don't feel that way. Remember, telling, telling someone not to feel what they're feeling is like having a middle C-tuning fork, hitting it on a desk, and putting it in front of a second middle C-tuning fork and saying to the second tuning fork, now don't you move, it's resonant, it's energy. the energy is going to move. Create the safe space for what you consider to be the over-emotional state. Use words and use the tools to assist in freeing that person from what you consider to be the over-emotional state and freeing yourself of the power person dynamic that says that's not allowed. Step into looking at how there were emotional expressions that you were not allowed. I suspect that's probably where the biggest healing is going to happen. And I'm just reading through the rest of the paragraph. Feeling a certain way will not make another person do your will. That's for sure. So breathing with you, and, and I'd say that that's, uh, that's really a, a, just a, a place for some work, some worksheets. I'd, I'd dig them out and start doing some work around that uh, particular situation, which... Unless you're available and you want to push one and, and speak more directly about it, I'll just uh, let that sort of sit as it is. And uh, you know that idea, the thought you express of if if you cannot tell the truth, well, what that for me would indicate that there's a fear-based filter active, and that's where the belief that you can't uh, tell the truth and so that would be another worksheet another place to handle or to uh, to utilize the forgiveness process and then uh the question why are women more emotional well i'm not sure that's true i wouldn't uh i i perhaps we might say more emotionally expressive but i've seen a lot of really powerfully emotional men boy you look at uh, some of these uh trauma-based attacks that happen in the world, some pretty crazy powerful emotion going there. I I would say that, you know, when you ask the question around that whole idea, Sean, is there another way to look at it? Yes, and what will lead to the other way to look at it is utilization of the forgiveness process. That's what will collapse the perceptions that are based in, you know, some form of hostility or fear. Uh, the next question Sean asked in his email is, is there a working version of the prison outreach I might look at? Um, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that, but there is not a currently a laws of living class being taught in any of the prisons. We are considering setting up and doing an online uh, Zoom intensive of laws of living, and it would probably be a 20-week study, I suspect. That's probably what we'll do. And so that's that would be a way to uh, to engage with laws of living. I sometimes communicate with prisoner pr- convicts and some who are in the system. The sheets may not be conducive while sending it into the prisons, but can be modified to get past the guards, reading and censoring them. Actually, we have prisons for... Gee, Twenty years. One of the first uh, prisons I went into, and this goes back to this is before I had Heartlands. This is thirty five or thirty six years ago. There was a prison in Coldwater, Michigan, that I was invited into by a a woman who had. We were doing an intensive in a a a center there, Fresh and Raw Food Center, Van Wickmore, and uh, there was a woman who was a guard. She and her husband were guards, and he was the head of the uh, prison. Uh, guards, and they came and did the "Why is this happening to me again?" workshop. We went into Coldwater Prison, taught it there, with just outrageous success. It was just really well, well received. And for 25 years before this husband and wife team um, retired, every he he was the intake person. They went whenever anybody went into the prison was sentenced to that jail or that prison, he, they went through him. He handed every person a copy of the worksheet, explained it to them, told them where the book was in the library, and said, if you want support, my wife and I are here to support you. So, yeah, we can cut recidivism. We can, it was just profound changes to happen there. And at this point, there is not a downloadable version of the first two chapters of my unfinished book. But uh, again, you know, you've, got, you, you've obviously got the link. You found it resonated. And then a definition of the word heart. The word heart in our modern updated language would be the unconscious. You know, when, when it said, take care of the heart, for out of it or the issues in life, they're saying take care of what's going on in your unconscious. Another word that would be the equivalent of heart in Aramaic would be desert. You know, they spent 40 years in the desert. that, That isn't about being in a hot, sandy place, but rather we're in this unconscious condition. And think about most people are about the age of 40 before they start waking up, scratching their heads and saying, gee, maybe there's something else going on here besides these pictures painted on the inside of my eyeballs. That's being lost in the desert or the unconscious. So I hope that fits. And again, if there's... Space Sean to uh, to have a conversation. Let's do it. If uh, if the group that's working with uh, oh I'm not remembering his name but the, that we did earlier uh, wants to meet again, Roy I'd Masters. love to do some of this work with them. With Roy Masters' work, yes, that would be awesome. And we're down to the last few seconds, so I'm just going to say thank you everybody for joining us. Have the best year yet of your eternal life. An awesome gift to give the world of blessings. Bye bye.